Isaiah chapter 35, starting in verse 1. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Wash, water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the horns where jackals once lay, the gra grass and reeds and pipers will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. The second reading is from Matthew chapter 9. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own home, own town. Some men brought him, to, brought him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their fate, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat and with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is that that we and the Pharisees fast often? but your disciples do not fast. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? 
The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from that garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. <coughs> Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men following him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said nothing. Said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Thanks, Angie, and good morning, everyone. About um, five or so years ago, around the time that Alicia and I got engaged, she began to suffer really badly with back pain, which lasted for several years before, before we gradually saw some improvement. Now, that was an extremely hard time for both of us. It was hard for Alicia going through the physical pain, and it was hard for me watching her go through it as well, and just the unknown of how long the pain would last for. We prayed and prayed and prayed about it, but we went a long time without seeing any answer to that prayer. Anyone who's experienced chronic pain or supported someone through it knows just how dark it can be at times. Uh, when you feel your, your identity is tied up in what you're going through, when you wonder when it's ever going to end. I'm sure all of us can think of a time where we've been confronted by significant physical or mental pain, whether that's our own or, or someone who we love. Possibly that's a reality for you right now, this morning. We know what it is to pray desperately for healing, or if you're not the praying type, at least to, to long desperately for healing. It's worth having these experiences in mind as we look at this passage because they'll help us to better grasp 
what the passage shows us about who Jesus is and also what he came to do. What we firstly see about Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 is that he has the power to bring physical healing. We have six healings, well actually seven healings, but we'll look at six for now. Uh, We've got a paralyzed man in verses 1 to 8. We've got a girl who has died, a woman with chronic bleeding, two blind men, and a man who is possessed by a demon and unable to speak. And there's three things that we notice. The first is that these healings are much needed. Jesus isn't healing a few runny noses here. These, these are people whose lives have been hugely impacted by their physical condition. Uh, for the paralyzed man and for the two blind men, there, there really wasn't much hope of a good quality of life in a society with no disability support. The, the bleeding woman would not only have been in great pain, but she also would have been unclean under Jewish law, and so she was socially excluded. The demon-possessed man is living a dehumanized existence, and what grief for the man who has just lost his daughter. Let's not miss the real moving human stories that are described here. I think it's so easy to fall into this trap, and I do as well, where we read a passage like this and we just think, oh, yep, yep, Jesus, he was a blind man. Jesus, he was a paralyzed man. Sure, sure. Um, Without really taking in the the human side of what's going on. Secondly, and related to that, the healings are miraculous. They are beyond human power. Even the 2,000 extra years of medical progress that we benefit from today would at best have only cured the bleeding woman. Paralysis, blindness, demon possession, death, these are way beyond our power to overcome. So let's not miss the wonder of what's going on here. And thirdly, the healings come as a result of faith. Jesus sees the faith of the paralyzed man and his friends in verse 2. The synagogue leader in verse 18, he knows that Jesus has the power to make his daughter live. Your faith has healed you, Jesus says to the woman in verse 22. Do you believe I'm able to do this? Jesus asks the blind men. Yes, Lord, they reply. And by calling him son of David, they also recognize him as God's chosen king. Their their sight is restored according to their faith. Jesus has the power to bring physical healing. But physical healing isn't ultimately our greatest need. It's not our greatest need. See, the healing of the paralyzed man points us to a greater truth that lies behind the physical healing, and that is that Jesus has authority to bring spiritual healing. Jesus sees the man's faith, verse 2, and and we kind of expect Jesus is going to heal the man, don't we? He's, He's going to make the man walk. But no, instead, he tells him, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. The teachers of the law uh, are standing there and they're horrified at this. They, they say, that's blasphemy because only God can forgive sins. Sin is something that is done against God, so only God can forgive sins. Jesus asks them, which one is easier, telling this man his sins are forgiven or telling him to get up and walk? And of course, on one level, it's easier to say his sins are forgiven, isn't it? Because who can disprove that? That's, that's between him and God. But Jesus says, I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
And again, he's using this son of man imagery from Daniel chapter 7 that we've been seeing in Matthew's gospel to, to describe himself, this son of man who has authority and glory and sovereign power. And Jesus is claiming to have authority to do something that only God can do, to forgive sins. So making a paralyzed man walk, forgiving his sins. Two humanly impossible tasks. How does Jesus prove that he has the authority to do the unseen one? Well, he does the visible one. Get up, take your mat and go home, he says to the man. And he does. And the crowd is watching this and they are, they are fearfully amazed. They praise God. We see the same thing at the end of the passage in verse 33 after the final healing. The crowd is amazed. They declare that they haven't seen anything like this before. Jesus' power to bring physical healing points us to his divine authority to bring spiritual healing. And it recalls, doesn't it, the words of Isaiah chapter 35 that we also read this morning. The eyes of the blind will be open. The lame will leap like a deer. The mute tongue will shout for joy. The events of Matthew 9. When will these things happen? Well, Isaiah says, when your God will come to save you. Which brings us to the reason for Jesus' coming. Right at the start of Matthew's Gospel in chapter 1, we're told that Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. Jesus has come because sick people need healing. Verse 12, Jesus says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. The, um, the doctor's clinic that I go to because of COVID restrictions and everything, you have to get a temperature check before you go in there just to, just to make sure that sick people... Can't get in, I think. I think is the, the idea behind that. I, I get why they do it. I don't need any angry emails from medical professionals explaining. I t- totally agree with why they do it. I just, I just find the irony a bit funny that you have to, you have to prove that you're not sick to, to go in and see a doctor. <laughs> because, of course, Jesus is right, isn't he? It's, it's sick people who need a doctor. And someone who's spiritually sick needs someone who can provide spiritual healing. Jesus fleshes out the metaphor in verse 13. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So if you're someone who is new to church, you're still kind of working out where, where you're at with God and what Christianity is all about, this is the heart of Christianity right here. All people are sinful by nature. We're opposed to God by nature. We can't live the way God calls us to. We will always fall short of his perfect standards. We can't please him by our own effort. We're deserving of his judgment. We're his enemies. But that's not where the story needs to end. Because Jesus, God the Son, came not to call righteous people because there aren't any. He came to call sinners, you and me, to save us, to forgive our sins so that we can be children of God instead of his enemies. But to do that, he had to cover our debt by dying for us and taking our punishment on himself. See, when Jesus asked that crowd, which is easier, to forgive sins, to forgive this man's sins or to perform a miracle, Jesus knew just how hard it would be to forgive his sins. Jesus knew how much it was going to cost him to do it. And it means that 
we can be saved, not by trying harder and harder and harder and being perfect ourselves, but by doing what the paralyzed man did, doing what the grieving father, the bleeding woman, and the two blind men did, coming to Jesus in faith, turning from our sins, accepting his death in our place. See, in this passage, the the physical helps us to better understand the spiritual. Because spiritually speaking, we are as needy as the people Jesus encounters in Matthew chapter 9. The physical healing that he brings helps us to understand the, the even greater spiritual healing that he brings to our brokenness. I take it that Jesus warns the blind man in verse 30 not to, to tell people about the healing because the physical healing is not what he wants people to focus on here. He, wants, he doesn't simply want to be known as a miracle healer. He wants the physical healing to point us to the forgiveness of sins that he freely offers. I can't grasp how bad my sin is. I can't grasp what it does to to my relationship with God. I I can't understand fully my own spiritual sickness. But I know something of what it is to suffer physically and mentally. Enough to know that if spiritual healing was a greater need for me than physical healing or mental healing, then sin must be very serious. That said, I don't want to trivialize the physical side of things here because I don't think this passage is at all doing that. Jesus cares greatly about our our physical and our mental ailments, enough to heal these real suffering people who he met. He could have shown his power in any number of ways, and yet so often he shows it by healing people. Jesus loved us enough to die for us, and he has power to bring physical healing. And so we should pray. We should pray persistently for healing. Sometimes those prayers will be answered with a yes, sometimes with a no, sometimes with a not yet. And we've seen that in our church family. We've we've prayed for a number of our members this year who have been in a bad way, and, and we've seen those different answers play out at different times. We pray because we know that God can and does work through our prayer for his glory and for our good. And so we trust our concerns to his perfect will. Now, if you're in pain or there are people who you love in pain and you're praying and you're praying and you're praying about it but you're not seeing anything come from it, you might read a passage like this and wonder, do I not have enough faith? Is that the problem? These people came to Jesus, they had faith and they were healed. Is that my problem? Not enough faith. Well, I want to be clear that what this passage is not saying is that answered prayer is always proportional to faith. That's not the message here. I can think of times when God has provided for me or for for someone that I love. And looking back, I've actually been ashamed at how little I prayed for it. Have you ever been in a situation where, where someone's got in touch with you and said, oh, this thing went really well, I was healed, or this went well, thank you so much for praying for me. And you think, I don't think I did pray for you. It um, doesn't happen too often, don't worry, but it's, it's, it's not a nice feeling to have. Um, but then, of course, there have been times when it's been the other way around as well, where I've prayed and prayed and prayed and I just haven't seen, 
haven't seen the outcome that I've wanted. These events in Matthew 9 are descriptive. They're not prescriptive. There's not a, a formula here. Physical healing is always possible with Jesus, always possible, but it's never explicitly promised, at least not in the short term. Because we are promised that one day the pain will be brought to an end for all who trust in Jesus. These healing miracles provide just a taste of that day when all things are going to be made right, when we'll share in Jesus' resurrected life in his presence forever. All the, the suffering, the sin, and the brokenness done away with forever. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 10, which we read, paints us a beautiful picture of what this will look like for God's people. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. The healings of Je- that Jesus brings in Matthew 9, they point us to this restoration. We have restoration of mobility, of sight, of health, restoration of life itself. And the delight of those people who are healed, the amazement of the crowds who are, who are watching this unfold, that will be nothing compared with the joy that we'll have on that final day. Physical healing will come because spiritual healing is ours through the cross. Jesus has met our greatest need. So we come to Jesus asking for physical healing, knowing that he may give it to us now. But we come to Jesus asking for spiritual healing, knowing without doubt that he gives it to us because he gave his life for it. Jesus' message is that he has come to call and save sinners. And it's an unpopular message. It puts him on a collision course with the religious leaders of his day. Because when Jesus says he's come for the sick, it's a response to criticism that he's received from the Pharisees, who are the the religious heavies of that time. In verse 9, Jesus has called Matthew a tax collector, someone hated and and looked down upon by the religious high-ups. And Matthew follows him. Matthew accepts the spiritual healing that Jesus offers, the forgiveness of sins. He becomes a disciple of Jesus. He writes a gospel account of Jesus' life, which we're reading. And he has Jesus around for dinner. The Pharisees, they wonder how someone who is claiming to be from God could associate with such overtly sinful people as Matthew and his friends. And so Jesus tells them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. And he then shows them how they're the ones who have got it all wrong. He points them to Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 in the Old Testament. Go and learn what this means, he says to them. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Hosea is written to people who were outwardly worshipping God. They were outwardly doing all the right things, but they weren't sincerely following God at a heart level. And that's what the Pharisees are guilty of. They're they're very serious about God's law, very obedient, very sacrificial. But they're unloving. They're unmerciful. Similar in verses 14 and 15, there's no point fasting way more than the law requires, which was actually just once a year, but missing the fact that Jesus is the one who the whole law 
is pointing us towards. Jesus is the bridegroom who has come to be with his people. The irony, of course, is that the Pharisees aren't healthy. They aren't righteous. They're self-righteous. They appear to be healthier spiritually than the people around them, but they're still sinners. They still fall short of God's standards. Jesus brings them an unpopular message because he's saying to them that they're no better off than the sinners and the tax collectors who they despise. They're just as much in need of saving. In fact, in a sense, they're worse off because they don't even recognize they're sick. They're the the asymptomatic carriers, if you want to put it in COVID language. See, at least the tax collector has recognized his need for Jesus, hasn't he? Jesus' teaching about sin and, and grace here, it simply doesn't fit with the religion of the day, with its, its focus on good works and obedience to the law, and of course, the smug self-righteousness and the hopeless sense of inadequacy that it inevitably brings. That's the point of the illustrations here in verses 16 and 17. You can't put new cloth on brittle old clothing because when the cloth shrinks, it's going to tear the clothing apart. You can't put new wine into rigid old wineskins because when the wine ferments and expands, it's going to burst the wineskins. What Jesus is bringing cannot fit into the religion of that day. Something has to give. And so the Pharisees cannot accept Jesus' message even when they see a miracle with their own eyes, verse 34, they write it off. He's doing this by the devil's power, not God's, they say. Jesus' message was unpopular then. It's unpopular now as well because people don't like being told that they're sinners. Maybe that's a barrier for you. Maybe that's the thing that's, that's holding you back from exploring more about Jesus. The idea that we need saving sounds really offensive, doesn't it? But I want to suggest that it's actually liberating because sin gives gives us an explanation for what we already know is true. It gives us a diagnosis that explains the symptoms. I've known Gemma McClellan for about 18 months to two years and she's managed to break her arm twice in that time, which is, you know, not a good start. Um, I take it that... The last time Gemma broke her arm, when she, when she fell over and landed on her arm and felt an enormous amount of pain in her arm and got taken to hospital, I take it that the diagnosis of a broken arm was actually quite helpful for her because it explained the reason that her arm was hurting. It explained the symptoms and it gave some helpful pointers for where healing could come from. I can't imagine that Beck and Richard were standing there in the ED, shouting at the doctors, yelling at how offensive it was to be told that their daughter's arm was broken. Because it's a diagnosis that explains the symptoms. And in the same way, we we look around and we see a broken world, don't we? We see war, we see inequality, we see corrupt power, and we experience the hurt that's caused by others. We're hurt ourselves, we see other people hurt by other people. And we don't even have to look out there to understand sin, do we? Because we just have to look in here. We all know the worst things about ourselves. I know that I'm nowhere near the person that I want to be. I'm nowhere near the person that I should be. Sin makes sense. It doesn't let us off the hook, but it gives us a good explanation 
for why things are the way they are. And it shows us the solution. Thank God Jesus came for sinners like you and me. And so church isn't a place where self-righteous people come to celebrate how much, better, how much better we are than everyone else. That's not church. Church is where broken people come to celebrate that Jesus met our greatest need. So if you think that you don't belong in church because you're too much of a sinner or you don't have your life together or you don't shape up, no, you're in exactly the right place. Church is also where we meet together, where we work together to take this good news to a world that needs to hear and respond. Uh, which is why we partner with mission organisations like ES on our uni campuses, like CMS all around the world. Organisations who have opportunities, resources and reach that we just don't. Uh, we heard at 11am last week and at 9am this morning about Maggie Cruz and about the, the work that she's doing with CMS, the amazing opportunities that she has to shine the light of Jesus in that part of the world. It's a, a desperate need and it's a place that we can't reach on our own here from the Adelaide Hills. So great that we're able to partner with her in that. It's also why our vision at Trinity Church Allgate over the next two years and beyond isn't just to keep things the way they are. It's to plant a new church, to start something new that God willing, we'll see people come to recognize their spiritual sickness and accept the spiritual healing that Jesus alone freely offers. It's an uncomfortable vision. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of prayer, a lot of dependence on God to make it happen. But some things are worth working hard for. Some things are worth getting uncomfortable for. Because Jesus came for the sick. He came to save sinners. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that Jesus came for sinful people like us. Thank you that he didn't come for the righteous, because that would have been no good for us at all. Thank you that he died so that we could have healing for our spiritual sickness. We pray that you would help us to build our lives on this knowledge, to, to rejoice in what has been done for us, that Jesus has met our greatest need. And we pray that you would equip us and motivate us and strengthen us to take this news to those who need to hear it. Father, we bring before you everyone here who is suffering physically and mentally and emotionally. We know that forgiveness of sins is our greatest need, but we, we have very real needs now as well. And, and we pray for your healing. We pray for those who are in pain that you would bring miraculous healing. We pray that whatever your will is in these circumstances, that for those of us who are in pain, that you would help us to fix our eyes on you, to, to trust that you have met our greatest need, to trust you with strength for each day that comes. In Jesus' precious name, amen.